Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Today is the third and final week of a short series called Why Are We Named Foundation? A year and a half ago, we chose this name for ourselves, and there are some really great New Testament answers about why foundation would be a good name for a Christian church. Two weeks ago, we highlighted that Jesus' own words, he says, my teachings are a great foundation, a great bedrock for your life. And when the storm comes, not if, when the storm comes, your, your life will not come crashing down the way that people who build their lives on sand, aka anything other than the teachings of Jesus, I know that's offensive and exclusive, but we're Christians, here we are. Jesus said about himself, I'm making this exclusive truth claim because I love you. You've got to build your life on what I say. I'm God, trust me. I love you. I'm telling you truth out of love, not to be a jerk, but every other place that you could possibly build your life is not gonna work. And so we did that two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at a text that very expressly, just simply, straightforward said that Christ himself is the foundation of the church. So that's one answer. Now, you can't take his teachings and his person and separate them, but two different texts saying it from a slightly different angle. And the text today is a little bit more complex, but it's beautiful. It's not as uh, complicated as, as it sounds. It's gonna tell us that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And that sounds like a contradiction at first. Wait, I thought you said Jesus was the foundation. Well, here in our text today, we're about to find out Jesus is the cornerstone, something that we don't know in in modern construction. It's a little bit different now. The first and eminently important stone that is put off of which the entire foundation will be defined by him. So as I've shared previously, and it's important for our text today, for the text to say Christ is the cornerstone and all of the prophets and all of the apostles are the foundation, it's saying every Old Testament prophet was pointing to Jesus and could not say one thing different and separate from what the second person of the Trinity was and allowed. They had to testify rightly of who he was, and they did. Born of a virgin, not one of his bones would be broken. How he would die, that he would be God in the flesh. Everything that they said, even if it was 800 years in advance, had to be built perfectly off of Messiah who was to come. And then the apostles, those who testify afterwards saying, hey, he emptied his own grave. Follow him. This is, that guy's a big deal. The foundation of the church, to put it in layman's terms, is the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those two things are all built off of Jesus. Now, that might not shock you. There are a lot of people in the world that believe the Old Testament is built off of Moses, but Jesus on the Emmaus Road explains to them for hours on end how all of the scriptures pointed to him. The book of Hebrews tells us that Moses was almost just a a type. He was a real historical person, but he was a type of the Jesus to come, the Messiah to come. God, Jesus can climb the mountain to be in God's presence without God making provision for his sin because Jesus is sinless. Moses comes down the mountain with law written on tablets. Jesus comes down the mountain with the law written on the hearts of his people, right? So Moses was pivotal. He's a bit, like, if you've got his rookie card and you stick it in the spokes of your bicycle, you're doing really well. Moses is a big deal. 
And yet Hebrews tells us how to interpret the life of Moses. You think Moses is awesome? Just wait till Messiah gets here. Okay? I've preached my whole sermon and all I'm doing, I'm just in the introduction. Okay. So the apostles and the prophets is the title of today's sermon. Um, Again, we've got some notes, um, some textual notes that you have in front of you. Um, We're not going to preach those today, but they're there for you. So go ahead and turn around, introduce yourself to the person behind you. We're about to do a discussion question. Hi, my name is... Good job, folks. You're doing great. And now I need you to tell a story to the person you just met. Tell a story about something that you tried to build without looking at the instruction manual. Tell a quick story. What was the last thing you tried to build without looking at the instruction manual? I'll give you 60 seconds. Go ahead and tell a story real quick. All right, anybody feel like sharing with the room? Anybody feel like sharing? What was, the, what was the last thing you tried to build without an instruction manual? Throw it at me. A nightstand? All the time. Everything? <laughs> anybody try something from Ikea? You go, oh, this is this simple. I'll just, it'll be fine. Huh? Parts is parts. Famous last words for some of us. We're going to fill in a blank and then we're going to talk about building things with or without the manual. But after I read the text, almost missed the most important part. Listen to this text in one of the lenses I want you to listen with is what are we building and how are we building it? The Apostle Paul writing almost 2,000 years ago to a church in modern Turkey. So now you Gentiles, everybody who's ethnically not Jewish, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling place where God lives by his spirit. Holy Spirit, please teach us the text today because apart from your intervention, we will mess it up. 
So teach us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Note takers, and I hope it's a lot of you, here are your blanks. The church is God's. So let's look to the Bible to see how he wants it built. Sounds simple, doesn't it? The church is God's, so let's look to the Bible to see how he wants it built. I'm gonna read the exact same text a second time. And let's look at who the church belongs to. Listen for possession language. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens. Wait, what does that mean? You're a part of a kingdom, kingdom that has a king. There's a kingdom with a king, along with all of God's holy people. Whose holy people? That's important. You are a member of whose family? God's family. Together we are whose house? His house. How, many, how much possessive language can Paul shove in here in one sentence or two? There's a lot of possession language. And so when we're reading a section that most modern translations, it probably says in your Bible, a temple for the Lord above this section. It's a temple and for the Lord, right? The, the, that title is not in the original Greek text. This is something the translators have put in to help chop up the, the text into manageable bites. But they're, they know Greek, they know Hebrew, you know, all of this stuff. And they feel that the emphasis of the text is, yes, it's a temple, but who is it for? It's for God. It's about his possession and for his glory. Okay, now this is, this is mission critical when we talk about foundation language, cornerstone language, because sometimes the New Testament tells us that God is building his church in the side, these illustrations, sometimes, like I'm thinking of um, the first Peter or second Peter, living stones language. Sometimes God is the builder and sometimes we are the builders. Some, like there's a participation with God to advance the kingdom, to build uh, his church. And if we think, I shouldn't say, I know I said it wrong. When we think the church is ours, we get big for our britches. When we think, uh, shared briefly last week, we talked about the carpet. Churches where the carpet is more holy than children. And so nothing can go on, no running, no, no this, no this, no this. And, and there's a list a mile long of the things you can't do. And sometimes the uh, pews have little brass plates of that family's name and that's their spot, right? Talk about feeling an overgrown sense of ownership, um, and I, I praise God that, again, 30 years ago, we were playing basketball and volleyball in here, indicated by the lines, and because uh, uh, of the De Beers leadership, we had the kids firing Nerf darts at each other just the other week. We apparently are living out our theology that we are the temple and this room is not. That's really important, guys. This thing can burn. It won't because we need to build an ark at the moment, but you know, this thing could just, we could have an earthquake. Like something could happen, right? Just think practically. And, and, the, and the theology bubbles to the surface. This building cannot be God's house. It can't. It's not built according to Levitical specs. And then we have a new covenant anyway that tells us we are the temple. Goodness gracious, that's exciting. So if, if this whole thing is God's, the church, the local church and the church universal, if it's God's, it is now mission critical to listen to his voice and asking, Father, how do you want us to build? 
We know on what we should build. Christ himself, the testimony of what the prophets said, the testimony of the apostles. We don't build, just like our text last week. Paul says, I laid the foundation like an expert builder, but I, I didn't build on anything other than Christ. Right? And we get to keep doing that. That wasn't just Paul's ministry. All of us get to keep doing that. So for me, my non-instructions moment, Gabriel got his first bike for Christmas this year. See that smiley boy? Cabrina and I opened up the box later. Well, it was before this, obviously, but halfway through Christmas Day. And I'm reading the instructions like a dutiful, trying to be a humble Christian. So I'm reading the instructions and leading my daughter. We read the instructions because this is what is humble and don't just wing it. And after the third time of the instructions being wrong because they were built for some generic bike, and your specific bike is, is different from their generic bike in a number. I, I, I had, the whole plan flew out the window and I had to set the instructions. I'm like, this isn't the teaching moment that I wanted with my daughter. Anybody plan a really good teaching moment with their kid and it goes sideways? As an aside, I was with my dad and my sister and mom, and dad was on staff at a church, and we were with the pastor and his family, and we were up in South Lake Tahoe when I was a teenager, and we're walking through the casino floor of Harvey's, and Pastor Bob wanted to show us all what foolishness gambling was. So he takes a nickel and puts it into the machine and pulls the lever. That was for free. But anyway, so... Cabrina and I, building Gabriel's bike, actually came to a point where we gave up on the instructions and we just looked physically at the object. Some of you are really good hands-on people and you're great with your spatial awareness and you would never think to look at the instructions because you're good at that. But that's not me. I want to follow. I grew up with Legos and you follow the instructions, right? We figured it out. But here's my concern for all of us in trying to follow Jesus we all have experiences of times where man-made instructions did not work. I was told that if I went, this is millennial speak, I was told that if I went and got a bachelor's degree from a good school that I would have a job. Two-thirds of my friends three years after graduating were not in their field. That's how rough 2008 was, right? We have these experiences with man-made instructions not working. I was told that I'd marry the one that made my heart flutter, that she was the one, and then we were divorced four years later. What, what the culture told me what love was, it, it didn't work, it broke. And, and then, at one point, someday, the hound of heaven finds us, we become a Christian. Amen. And we're told that this book is a really big deal. In fact, we're told this book is holy and perfect. And to the secular mind, that's a far-fetched claim, Right? And we have been programmed that instructions can be faulty. Even the best intentioned instructions can be faulty. And so we bring that junk to the table when we are introduced to the Bible. We do not come to the Bible as a blank slate. We come with distrust deeply lodged in our hearts. Not that God has ever done us dirty, but we've just listened to counsel that fell flat and hurt us even. And so we come to this and God's saying, this is what my church is and this is how it is supposed to work and this is how you're going to find human flourishing. This is how the church is gonna be a city on a hill. 
And instead of gladly, joyfully submitting to the voice of our Father, we raise it. We're in the guy in the back raising his hand. Um, yeah, that's nice, Jesus, but I have some thoughts. We all do it. We all do it. The king of the universe is telling us how he wants it done. And it's not just that he's being a jerk boss. He's saying, you're going to receive so much joy and blessing from doing it this way. You guys are my family. I am the head of the family. I have the king of the kingdom. And this is, trust me. Trust me. He calls to us. And we bring our baggage. So let's unpack some of our baggage We do not, we must not build God's church with our feelings. Doesn't matter what Aladdin and Jasmine told you in 1993. We don't build God's church with pragmatism. I I could have put a number of different verses next to pragmatism, but frankly, I'm thinking of the times when Israel was told to rely on God and they formed a pagan alliance with yet another group because of their army. They played politics instead of calling out to God. We can't build the church on the opinions of people. First Kings 12 is where God's people were split into the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom from listening to the opinions of people when God had already spoken through the prophet what to do. We can't build the church on the claims of special revelation. God told me, oh yeah? Well, it needs to measure up to scripture because this is what God told us, right? In Colossians 2, actually, well, not just there, um, Galatians 1, heck, even if an angel from heaven comes with a different gospel than the one you've already heard, let him be forever be accursed, okay? We cannot build on a foundation other than Christ and him crucified. So it doesn't matter that somebody comes to us and say, I had a dream, I had a vision, trust me, I have some amazing insight. If it contradicts scripture, the conversation's over. Tradition, we've always done it this way. Um, that section in Ephesians is simply about repentance in the Christian life. Again, could have picked a lot of different texts to say we don't build God's church because we've always done it this way. Guys, not a rhetorical question. Is it really, really possible to build God's church in a particular way in 1977 and it be highly effective, but by 1995 it's not effective anymore? Is that possible? Is it even probable? Methodology, guys, not only changes, it has to change. Methodology has to change. It is the message that must not change. Timeless message, timely methodology is how the church brings the gospel to people. So a gut check question for everybody who loves Jesus and calls foundation your church home. Are your ministry efforts held accountable to what God says he wants? Um, this sounds, again, really kind of ludicrous that we're even talking about it, but I, I just, I see it all the time. I've done it all the time myself. Most of the time, if we are honest, the way we do ministry is a carbon copy with a couple of minor critiques of what was modeled for us because more is caught than is taught, right? We learn to pray. Why does every Christian in the English-speaking world ask God to bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies? And why do they use those exact words? We don't ask for oxygen to supply our lungs. We don't ask for our brains to keep waving. We don't ask for our heart to keep beating. 
But we do ask for food to do what it was designed to do. Why? Because there's a Bible verse that tells us we have to? No. More is caught than is taught. Somebody prayed that way, and prayer is not learned typically from Scripture, although it ought to be. We learn Scripture from the person who led us to the, sorry, we learn prayer from the person who led us to the Lord. They prayed that way, and we tend to mimic it. And by the way, that's not inherently good or inherently bad. It's just the power of modeling. If you're a greeter, hey, look, it's me. You probably greet the way that you saw greeters work before. If you're a Sunday school teacher, there's a good chance that you teach Sunday school the way that you have seen modeled for you or the way that you uh, were taught when you were a kid, if you were a Christian when you were little. Um, I feel bad for teachers because everybody's got an opinion about how you should be doing your job because they grew up receiving from teachers and we walk out of that going, I know what a teacher does, even though we were actually on the other side of the relationship. And so years later, we're probably way too mean and demanding of our kids' teachers because we think we're experts. More is caught than is taught. And yet, what if Scripture tells us lots and lots of things about our area of ministry, the spirit in which it should be done. It's not gonna probably say the methodology because the scriptures were written for every culture across a vast amount of time. But what if, just what if, maybe we've did ministry for a decade or more, all pointed in the same direction with a heart that genuinely desired to serve God and serve his people and serve the world, And what if we missed some things because we weren't listening to our Father? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? That would be a tragedy. We want to give God everything he deserves. Everything he deserves. And so carefully taking, hey, here's what I believe this ministry is about. Here's what I think we're trying to accomplish. Submitting that to Scripture is the first step. It's the first step. And we might submit it to Scripture and carefully look through Scripture and find out our ministry plan is totally right. Praise God. Praise God. But if there is a king and there is a kingdom, we don't build large things without checking in with the king. We just don't. He's the source of all truth. So my commission to you, commit to building your ministry on the Bible. Commit to building your ministry on the Bible. And this is why um, I've, for those of you guys that are in disciple groups and the first time that the disciple groups meets for the 13 weeks, the first week we read through a document that says, why groups and what are they trying to accomplish? And the very first sentence of that document on purpose says, Foundation Christian Church affirms disciple groups as an effective Timeless biblical methodology for making disciples because of what? Jethro's advice to Moses, get him into groups of tens. You're not gonna be able to lead this great people like this. This is gonna wear you out. Ezra, discovering the scriptures and reading it to the people and the Levites spread out amongst the people in little groups to explain the scriptures to them so they understand what Ezra's saying. Jesus spends about half of his ministry with huge crowds but all of it with 12. And then in the early church's example in Acts 2 and 3, they met in Solomon's colonnade, this huge area where Peter could preach, and house to house, in houses way smaller than what you or I could imagine. Maybe seven or eight folks 
huddled around a table talking about Jesus. So that's just an example of, of one ministry where we're trying to go, is this just our opinion or is this really modeled throughout scripture of something we ought to be doing? I wanna encourage you, whatever you, and I'm not talking just to ministry leaders, by the way, everybody who loves Jesus calls this church their home. Whatever you, you find your hands to do, measure it against scripture. Hey, those of you guys that make coffee, we know your ministry's biblical. It says he brews. Like we don't have to wonder. Okay, now that the horrible joke is done, we know that there's something inherently biblical about anticipating the needs of your brothers and sisters and just loving and serving them, right? That's not hard to see in scripture of just wrapping a towel around your waist and serving, right? Next for you note takers, the testimony of the apostles and prophets is the foundation of the church. So studying both the Old and the New Testaments is critical to a well-rounded Christian life. A well-rounded Christian life. You don't hear it talked about as much nowadays, I'm glad. But growing up, I did hear people say about themselves, I'm more one of those New Testament Christians. I never knew what that meant. I never knew what that meant because by God's grace, I grew up in church and it was really clear, like, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, what is, the, the whole thing has been not just anticipating Christ, but yearning for him. Mel Gibson did a great job in one of the opening scenes of The Passion. He put what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. Jesus gets up from praying three times, Father, let this cup pass from me. And this snake is sneaking up behind him. And you know he has to go to the cross and you're like, I don't remember a story of Jesus getting bit by a snake. What's going on here? It's an image of what God already said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And Jesus smashes the head of the snake and walks to his cross. From Genesis 3, God was telling us, I'll save you. You're not gonna save you. You're gonna try, you're going to fail in your arrogance. I'm gonna save you. Two thirds of the Bible that often gets ignored. Hey, it's confusing. Hey, I don't understand. Hey, what's that whole thing with the Amalekites about? Brothers and sisters, this text is telling us the prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. Christ himself is the cornerstone. Christ isn't just the cornerstone of everything that Paul said. He's the cornerstone of everything Isaiah said. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the book of Hosea. If you read the book of Hosea and you don't see Jesus yet, read it again. Ask somebody who's been a Christian longer than you. Hey, have you read or studied Hosea? Show me Jesus. Exodus, we're reading through Exodus, great. Show me Jesus. You're not sure, you don't see it, it's not in your study notes? Great, ask somebody who's been a Christian longer than you. Where's Jesus in Exodus? Because the prophets have Christ as their cornerstone too, not just the apostles. And that's the best news ever. We serve a God who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The New Testament celebrates that God saved us and told us what do we do now with that salvation. The Old Testament was showing the need for salvation. Romans 3, 19 and 20. No one has ever been made right in God's sight by obeying the law. The more we try to obey the law, the clearer it becomes we're not obeying it. We're a mess. The whole law is showing us that we are a mess in need of a savior. How much deconstruction of our pride not just ours, every culture, every tribe, every tongue, we want to rely on our own ability to do the right thing. And God gives us the law for the express purpose of proving the point. Anybody ever had a kid, you told the kid something 30 times, 50 times, 200 times, and at some point you go, okay, all right, try it. Try it. That's what the Mosaic law was. That's what the 10 commandments were. You wanna try to be holy? Go for it. God knew it wasn't going to work. He knew that. He was deconstructing our arrogance to get us ready for a cross. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So, children fighting. Everybody's favorite pastime. With my kids, here's how it goes down. Abby cries, runs into the room demanding justice. If you're new, Abby's two. So she goes, Gabriel hit me. And like a lot of times fighting between kids, she didn't lie. Gabriel hit her. Okay, yeah. Abby, which toy did you steal this time? <laughs> I believe you. He hit you. He shouldn't do that. That's a sin. Jesus died for sin. We're going to deal with that. What did you do right before he hit you? See, context matters. And this is what I want to ask Foundation Christian Church. Jesus died for my sins. Great. What happened right before that? What happened before he died for our sins? He lived a perfect life. That's great. What happened right before that? He took on flesh when he was God and didn't have to. What happened right before that? 400 years of silence, not knowing if God was gonna come through. What happened right before that? Over a thousand years of the prophets telling us God would come through. What happened right before that? Well, during the prophets, human leaders were failing miserably. What happened right before that? Well, we were in slavery in Egypt. It wasn't going very well. What happened right before that? God made an unbelievable promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, not just your seed. If you're not a Jew, that should be a beautiful promise for you. <laughs> what happened right before that? Well, Babel, amongst other things, human beings think, let's just build our own town, let's be God. What happened right before that? Well, I mean, the very first brothers, one murders the other, so things are going awesome. What happened right before that? Humanity created a schism between God and man. What happened right before that? God made it perfect, showing us his intention for a joyful, creative existence for his children. What, what happened right before that? Eternity passed, it's too big for you. All of those things matter. Yeah, 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 he hit you. But what happened right before that? The Old Testament makes the New Testament make sense. It makes the cross make sense. It makes the empty tomb make sense. It makes Pentecost make sense. 
Pentecost is an intensely Old Testament dripped event because tongues of fire are hanging on top of people instead of hanging on top of the mountain. Jewish eyes knew what to see. Fire's on the mountain and God tells us how our relationship's gonna be and then fire's on top of people. So here's what I wanna ask you to do. Commit yourself to the holistic study of scripture. Commit yourself to the holistic study of scripture and and there are two ways this can manifest and then we're gonna be done. The facilitator in your disciple group has a choice and maybe you do a democracy, maybe your group talks about it, has a choice between three different things to do with your Bible teaching time. You can choose a book of the Bible, you can choose an elder approved curriculum, or you can follow along with the sermons, dissect those and wrestle with them. For those of you that do curriculums or that do a book of the Bible, let me just encourage you. If you just did an Old Testament book, maybe, maybe next semester it's time to switch it up and go to the New Testament. If you just did a New Testament book, maybe it's time to switch it up and get back to the Old Testament. Your group can do whatever you wanna do. Just stay in the scriptures, right? And then individually, your own Bible reading. Let me encourage you to go read something where you just honestly say, I don't know that I've ever read that book before. And then when you've read all 66 of them, let me encourage you, read, read whatever you can't even remember. I, I know I read that in theory, but I don't even remember that book. Great, read that. Read that because every drop of it is the heart of our father. Every drop of it and none of it is wasted. This is how we build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We listen carefully to what our father said before Jesus came and what our father said through the apostles after Jesus came. These things matter, foundation. These are for our blessing. These are for our joy. It's like eating lots of fruit, but ignoring vegetables. Like, no, 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 all of it was given out of the gracious heart of God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll do a couple announcements and go. King Jesus, this church is yours, just as the church universal is yours. We thank you for that reality. And please teach us, God, what joyful submission is to all of your instructions and all of your commands about how we should serve the church, how we should serve the world. Help us to be so hungry to hear your voice that that hunger manifests itself in reading and study and good discussions. God, I thank you for the folks that you've put into groups and studies in the last couple weeks. And I ask you to keep doing it, that everybody would have a place to ask questions and to be taught, to be encouraged, to be loved, to be prayed for. Um, Allow love and grace to dominate those groups. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So real quick, baptism.